0: This is Julio Romo and welcome to my 247 podcast. Today I'm in conversation with the BBC's senior World Affair producer Stuart Hughes. Stuart has an extensive career in journalism with experience of producing some of the leading stories from around the world. He is also a visiting fellow at Bournemouth University's Faculty of Media and Communications and the voice of Brentford Football Club. In this podcast, we talk about the importance of social media and the impact of misinformation on journalism and what communicators can learn to tell better stories. Do follow and subscribe. Stuart Hughes, thanks very much for uh, the time. Uh, so uh, Stuart, you are Senior World Affairs Producer at, at the BBC, uh, over 25 years, obviously, with uh, with the organisation, news gathering uh, around the world, uh, many stories uh, to kind of share. Uh, so it's, it's a pleasure to uh, have you. This is uh, the second interview that I'm carrying out in, this in, in conversation. And I just really wanted to start by obviously introducing you, but uh, also... See if you could tell us a bit more about your career to date.
1: Thanks, Julio. Thanks for uh, inviting me to to talk to you. Um, I, I started off uh, as a as a junior researcher at BBC Wales. I grew up in Cardiff and lived there for uh, eighteen years before going off to university. And as much as uh, I consider myself Welsh, and I'm very Patriotic. Uh, I didn't ever anticipate uh, uh, starting my career in uh, in Wales. Um, but the way things turned out, um, because I had local knowledge and I knew I wanted to work in journalism, um, opportunities arose in BBC Wales. And so uh, it seemed crazy not to take them up at that stage of my career in my early 20s. Um, so I worked at BBC Wales for, um, for about three years and then moved to London and climbed the... Uh, Climbed the greasy pole, if you like. I always knew I wanted to work in foreign news. That was, that was um, my main interest and my main uh, goal. So It took a very long time. Obviously, it's a competitive part uh, of a competitive field to get into. But eventually, I managed to uh, claw my way into working in foreign news and have been there ever since. Uh, I started off primarily as a radio producer and then moved into TV. And obviously as the media landscape has changed so quickly, then I've had to adapt as well. So uh, there's really mostly no such thing as the radio or a TV producer anymore. We are, content providers, I guess you'd, you, we would never use that phrase, but I guess that's what you mm-hmm. call us. So on any given day, I could be working on anything from um, a package for the Today programme to the technical aspects of getting somebody on air to on the World at One, right down to getting, on the, uh, getting a piece on the 10 o'clock news.
0: And, and obviously, you know, in that 20, 20, 25 years, as you said, things have changed, uh, and especially the technology has changed. How has the, uh, the World Affairs team, Uh, change, especially in the last number of years with the uh, increase of smartphone journalism uh, and more importantly obviously with social media. Uh,
1: I think one of the things I particularly notice is when social media started to become an increasingly important part of, of our landscape. It was felt by a lot of correspondents that it was a sort of additional add-on, it was a nice-to-have, and it was something they primarily that they didn't need to really involve themselves in because uh, it was seen as ephemeral, uh, ephemeral, it was seen as not really important to the core job of, of journalism. Another important factor is that uh, a lot of the um, correspondents who work in foreign news are there because they've got a lot of experience, um, and with that, becomes, they tend to be a bit older. Um, because, uh, certainly within the BBC, you don't get into foreign news as your first job. You've got to build your way up and into it. So when social media um, became um, something that we should be taking notice of, and it seems like a lifetime away now, some of these senior correspondents, partly because of their age, um, thought, well, I don't understand it. I don't need to get involved with it. I'll just ignore it. Now, that's obviously... Uh, changed now. Everybody, from the youngest to the uh, oldest, uh, foreign uh, news uh, operative knows that, uh, that that that's where the that space we need to be in. Uh, but the the levels of uh, personal involvement and engagement in those channels, and uh, the level of understanding of how those channels work and how they can be leveraged and harnessed. Really varies. It's, the, the levels, the levels, skill levels are getting higher all the time. But uh, it may, may or may not surprise you that uh, there are some correspondents that I work with who are fantastic foreign mm-hmm. correspondents mm-hmm. with decades of experience <clears throat> uh, who can uh, write the most beautiful um, piece of copy or produce the most beautiful TV report for the ten o'clock news. But ask them to engage. Um, with an audience on social media and they wouldn't know where to start. Uh, I think uh, th- those people are the last of their breed um, because having not having... The social media um, awareness as part of your skill set is no longer going to be acceptable or um, it's, a, it's a generational thing so I think we're seeing the last of the senior foreign correspondents who don't know how to tweet or don't know how Facebook works but certainly those the, the, those those uh, the people of that generation are still are, are still very much uh, active and, and and I don't want to say that there has been or that they're um, dead wood but it's just a sign of the t- of how quickly things have changed that even within my career we've seen um, the skill set that's required in order to be an effective and successful um, foreign correspondent has changed. I mean,
0: there's, there certainly is two sides to social and digital and, and equally messaging uh, as well. There's obviously the reporting to your audience uh, and letting them know that the latest package is there, but there's equally the news gathering as well. How important is the social uh, area for news gathering, for finding stories and obviously we're now in an era of misinformation as well.
1: Yeah, I think in the beginning, uh, social media was seen as sort of like a one-way street for 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 BBC journalists who were w- working on, on uh, who were who were dipping their toes in the water of social. It was it was basically a chance for them to put links up and say, "Here's my piece on the ten o'clock news. Click here and watch it again." It was it was it was a sort of traditional advert, if you like. But there wasn't a, a very high level of engagement in that. It was just one-way traffic, and that was fine for a while. And obviously, it was earlier in the in the evolution of of, of social. Social media now. uh, I I think there is a greater understanding that 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 being engaged in that uh, in that space, in that conversation in social media, is 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 part of 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 what we do. That um, putting up uh, links to your pieces on the ten o'clock news is no longer enough. Different correspondents will engage in that space in to different levels depending on their interests. Some correspondents, understandably, just feel that they haven't got time or the inclination to engage too um, too deeply in that space. Their main priority is still um, to get the piece on the ten o'clock news or the Today programme, and that's perfectly understandable. We are not uh, given a job description which says um, you must tweet or you must be on Facebook, and so uh, for some people. We focus on on what you are, what is in your job description, which is.
0: And that's obviously unlike other news organisations, more the commercial news organisation who obviously is, you got you capture, you deliver yep. and you promote the content.
1: Yeah, and obviously we have different uh, different uh, business model. If you are Sky, um, not only is there the personal branding issue for the individual correspondents, but there is a need to push that content out as widely as you can to as many places as you can in order to draw listeners, uh, viewers, and revenue. We don't have that same uh, impetus because we're a publicly funded commercial organisation. Um, so we don't have that uh, commercial imperative to... Um, to build to build social audiences to the same extent, uh, our fo- our focus on on building social audiences either at an individual level or on the um, on the main BBC accounts is is to is to um, is to drive um, viewership and and, and listenership. Um, I think uh, on the on the sides of disinformation and news gathering, um, again. Uh, to begin with uh it was there was a perception that it's only people with too much time on their hands uh who want to take photographs of their breakfast who are on social media obviously everything has changed completely i mean to uh to your audience who are very versed in social media that will probably um they will find that unbelievable that that, that that was a perception but even I would say five years ago um some some journalists who I spoke to would say I haven't got time to tweet and I can't be bothered because it's just a bunch of people taking selfies uh I think that uh, perception is, has pretty much been swept away now and we all know uh that um, that uh, social media is where stories break where stories develop where story ideas come from mm-hmm. Um, and so even if uh, some of my colleagues aren't actively engaged in that space um, in terms of uh, a, a dialogue and a conversation, they are still um, more closely monitoring and seeing what's going on in social media because they know um, that they have to be. And to give you, uh, to, just to give you a sort of anecdote, which which maybe gives you a, a, an insight into... Uh, how how the game has changed. You would walk into any newsroom anywhere in the world 10 years ago, um, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Well, if you go back 50 years, you would have the teletype machine with the Reuters and the AP feed yeah. in the corner of the room and it would start rattling and you knew there was news happening and you go and rip the copy off. This, the, yeah. Oh, something important's happening. Let's see what the AP copy is. Uh, five years ago, you would still log in and the first thing you would do would be go to AP and Reuters to read the wires that the stories would break on the wires. The stories would develop on the wires. And that was your go-to place. I now have the wires up. I, if I want a quick, read through of what the latest on the story is, I will go to the wires. But I don't think, I cannot remember the last time that I saw a breaking news alert on AP or Reuters or AFP that told me something that I didn't already know, having having got it from social. So uh, the role of the of the traditional news agencies is changing massively. I think they are still hugely relevant because they can add value and, and provide added content. But for, for us as journalists... The days when we would sit at our desks and wait to see the AP news alert or the Reuters news alert and say "Ooh, there's a story" are, are long gone.
0: And how obviously you see, as you say, you tend to see a lot more breaking news on social channels. I'm sure you have got your keywords all set up for that. From seeing the story, how do you then check the uh, the fact that it is a verified story? Do you suddenly have to? Can you just can, can you go to your UGC team, your verification team, to say? this is what's being said, can you verify it? Because that will tell me if I've got a lead here or not.
1: Well, obviously, I mean, there's two things there. One is that a lot of um, organizations, be they NGOs, government departments, uh, whoever, uh, um, uh, state actors, are breaking their news on social media now. So, um, you know, it, it, I'm not saying that we wouldn't see a tweet saying it came from um, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard's official account then we wouldn't check it out, but it is a primary source. Yeah. Um, so um, it is our – I, I, use, I use social media uh, very much as my early warning tool. Yeah. Um, and one tool that I find indispensable now is data miner. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is absolutely amazing. I mean, I know the energy sector is using it. The the, um, the the business world are using it for for. Um for business intelligence the risk management sector are using it for risk uh, risk intelligence and we're using it for story intelligence and the speed and the um, inventiveness of the algorithms that they're using the, the the speed at which they're able to spot stories before their stories I, I don't know what goes on under the hood obviously you get some false positives uh, some negatives some uh, false information that's fine because it's an algorithm and it's you know it needs still needs the professional judgment but what, what the, the way that I use social is I will get an alert on data miner or I will see something that is uh, breaking and I will go, oh, there may be something happening here. And then after that, the next stage is to um, revert to our traditional news gathering techniques, be they pick up the phone and call the authorities or the police or a government department, uh, be it talk to experts in the field, be it talk to the individuals who are tweeting if it's, um, you know, a story with eyewitness reports. Um, And we do, you know, the the, the stuff we've always done, um, you know, checking things out. Uh, it's just a lot of that checking now takes place in the in the digital sphere rather than, uh, you know, when I started out in the Radio Wales newsroom where you'd pick up the phone and call the cops.
0: So obviously, data has become uh, key and it's become central. Uh, that's going to stay uh, as as it is. I'm really, you know, talking about data. Do you? look at data specifically with the COVID situation that we find uh, ourselves in with things over, over the Atlantic in, in the US, obviously in South America and even in China, obviously that's, that's got its own uh, social bubble there. How do you uh, look at that and how do you use data now?
1: I will confess that um, a, a sort of deep understanding of data and data wrangling is the one area that I think certainly in my field uh, of foreign news is, is one of, still one of our weak spots. Uh, i don 't think we 're alone in that but um, again for for your colleagues who are more versed in in the the deep side of social media you know data is 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 the nut that we haven 't cracked yet um, because we 've been so focused on the traditional forms of information gathering and data is for many foreign correspondents a bit of an unknown quantity we don 't know how to analyze data we don 't know what to do with it um, we don 't know how to find stories in it because we've never been taught. Uh, and uh, and I, so I think that is a big, a big weak spot. And it is being addressed. We are investing more in data journalism because there is a realisation that uh, it's an important part of the picture now. But I wouldn't say, uh, in my organisation, I wouldn't say that process is in its infancy. I'm just saying it hasn't trickled down throughout the newsroom. There are the guys that do data who who know data, Uh, but I wouldn't say that everybody has got a bit of data knowledge um, or even um, necessarily realizes that they should have a a bit of data knowledge. So I think that's the big unaddressed area at the moment. But what we are aware of is how others are using data very effectively. So during COVID-19, the Johns Hopkins um, modeling and um, the stuff that the FT have been doing, which is fantastic, the stuff that the Economist has been doing with data, we are all watching that and taking note of it and reading the graphs and reading the analysis. Um, I suppose it started with uh, Nate Silver that we started seeing the how, how data could be used in a news gathering context. We haven't taken that next step so much and uh, are actually doing the data crunching ourselves. Uh, it is happening, but as I say, it's it's happening in silos. But I think that will change. But but um, given the the high quality of the news information that's come out of out of data from COVID nineteen, as I say, with people like the FT, that that we realise that that, um, that that is newsworthy and something that we should be again educating ourselves in and getting our skills up in.
0: I gather that obviously in international news gathering. That personal relationship has always been a central point uh, and, and very important in, in getting the story, equally in verifying the story as well, even if you're having off the record uh, chats there. But obviously, COVID has stopped that. Uh, how, how much has COVID affected that ability to have that personal, uh, you know, that one to one conversation? Have things pivoted more towards messaging to WhatsApp, Telegram, and other ways? And that has, has that damaged trust? between, say, you and your own contacts then? No,
1: I think the opposite, actually. Um, certainly in my field, I, I work in the, in the field of, uh, particularly the field of diplomacy and foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. That is all about personal, um, personal connections, personal mm-hmm. contacts. Uh, you know, at its simplest, it's the brushing up against somebody in the House of Commons tea room and, and gossiping, Obviously, uh, and finding a story. That side of things is, has clearly ground to a halt. Um, that's, that's not happening at the moment. Also, a uh, huge, huge store is still placed amongst the colleagues that I work with on access. The fact that not even press officers and PR people, but government ministers or senior government advisors will return your calls. Mm-hmm. That is prized, nurtured, and very uh, jealously guarded, the, the, those, those connections. And those connections have still continued under lockdown. Uh, we are still able to, to communicate, just albeit not face-to-face. But one of the things I found, and it's been really interesting in the last couple of months, is, is whereas the whole of the world is sort of as contracted and narrowed and closed down, the positive side for us as journalists is people are more available, potentially, than they've ever been before. Because if you're trying to talk to someone senior in a government department or an NGO or a CEO of an NGO or whoever it may be, the chances are they're sitting at their desktops the same as you are. So whereas it would previously have taken you a month to set up a meeting or a coffee, now we'll WhatsApp them and they'll say, oh, pop on to Zoom, we'll have a chat. So that access... Although still guarded and and privileged is in some ways easier because people are more have been more available, so there is the potential there, and I don't think this is all going to suddenly disappear after lockdown ends. I think people have got used to this new way of communicating uh, I think people will will potentially have more time for those or will still have time for some of those conversations and uh, so, uh, I, I can see in the future for the sort of work I, I do, um, the sort of relationship between reported and reporters will be a sort of mixed, a more mixed, mm-hmm. uh, hybrid, if you like, of personal contact in the times that we can have those coffees and those breakfast meetings, but also a lot of the chat will be directly changed as a result of COVID and our new mindset that we can say okay we'll go to the breakfast meeting because it would be good to shake hands or fist bump with somebody mm-hmm. but then a month from now oh well we'll just pop up and jump on zoom for 10 minutes and and do that as well
0: have people become more open to chat uh, overseas as well
1: yeah yeah i think uh, uh, to give one example i was uh, putting together a piece about china um and china's wolf warriors a few weeks ago mm-hmm. um, and in this new way of working it was it, the the interviews that I did were largely done or, or scheduled out of necessity because we were in the in the height of lockdown and um, doing face to face interviews just was virtually impossible. Full stop. But in the course of about three hours, after pre scheduling some Zoom chats, I was able to talk to a think tank policy person in Europe and a think tank policy person in Washington and get interviews with great insights um, and uh, in audio and video. And I did everything that I needed for a TV and radio package. Uh, I got all the interviews in the space of a a few hours. Uh, That is an absolute game changer for me. Setting up and doing those interviews in normal times, would have probably we would have staggered them over the course of two or three days. And we did it in two or three hours, uh, which was remarkable. So by the time I got to five o'clock on, the, on that day recording, I said, blimey, this afternoon we've done everything that we need to get this piece together. That normally would have taken us days. Uh, and that's fantastic because it means we can do more more efficiently. And from the audience's point of view, the days when people would frown or turn up their nose because an interview was on Zoom or done down the line from someone's bedroom. COVID has blown all of that away completely and i can't stress enough to people who don't work in the broadcast industry how much of a obsession that was for program editors oh the interview with uh, even if it was with a relatively minor figure or just somebody or say an academic oh that interview has to be beautifully lit it has to be beautifully shot it has to have two cameras on it you can't have any distractions in the background uh, you have to have a craft cameraman with 10,000 pounds worth of equipment shooting it now, uh, that's just uh, even now. I a few months down. That thinking just seems so obsolete, because we know that people don't care anymore. It's not they don't care because they they they, they are um, uh, flippant. They don't care because they know it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you have an MP uh, on air talking from his bedroom. We're used to it now. So that is that is that is that is I think one of the big game changes from this experience that a lot of the grunt work of actually getting the material in the can is is get is going to be a whole lot easier uh, in the months ahead. And I don't think the lessons that we've learned from from this period are going to go away. We know that this is the way to do things from now.
0: But do you think in some way that certain countries are using COVID to? Uh, regain a lot more control on the narrative that they wish to push. Yeah, I mean, I did, a, I did quite
1: a, a big piece a few weeks ago on China's wolf warriors, and that's, that, that, is, uh, that is exactly the area in which you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the way that uh, state actors are changing the way mm-hmm. that they're using social media. You could call it misinformation, disinformation. I would just call it propaganda or government comms. Um, call it what you will. Um, but clearly, you know, if you take China as a, a small example the way that they're using social media for their comms has changed from reactive to proactive and it's got a lot more muscular and mm-hmm. will continue to be muscular it's not uh, as one person said it's not cute panda pictures anymore mm-hmm. they're getting out there and and and, and pushing their message in a, in a muscular way the tweets that uh, senior uh, government officials be they from china britain or russia or anywhere in the world are sending are not please check out my new press release anymore. They are, they are pushing their narratives directly on social media. We're, we're still getting used to that. It's, it's relatively new. Um, we're still getting used to how Um, governments are evolving to to use social media in a different way. Um, But we're certainly aware of it and we're certainly um, uh, taking a very close interest in it because we know how much message shaping and narrative shaping is now taking place through those channels. And those channels will be different depending on which country the the particular person is, is from and which country they're aiming at.
0: Uh, are you able to, to to deliver more insight to more people well at the moment well certainly for
1: the last couple of months it's been a bit difficult because our main focus has just been to keep the keep the show on the road keep the stuff on air so we we, we genuinely haven't had time to think more widely about how can we harness this? How can we leverage this new normal uh, to um, to change the way that we tell stories? Our main focus has been, and still is, don't fall off air. Mm-hmm. How are we going to fill the program when we can't uh, physically get to a lot of people? How are we going to make a piece for the 10 o'clock news when when we can't physically get to people? What pictures are we going to get? How is, how is our television visual grammar going to have to change, given that, most of the pieces that you're going to see on air is going to be somebody talking to somebody else on a laptop which isn't particularly good telly and I think we're seeing a lot of innovations uh, creative innovations in the grammar of television over the last few months because uh, our very skilled camera people are saying well look I've just seen six pieces in the last two days with a correspondent look staring down the barrel of a laptop that's getting boring now, mm-hmm. so let's change the visual grammar. What else can we do that's going to make it a bit more interesting to look at um, so so that's that's a work in progress very much that I think is going to continue massively but in terms of of how are we going to use this to um, to uh, change the way that we um, deliver content. We're not quite there yet because we are still, we are starting to, uh, starting to get, st- step back a bit from the height of crisis mode. Um, but we're still at level four and a half, I would say, in terms of our crisis because overnight the BBC went from a very newsroom-based, centralised um, way of working with six, up to 6,000 journalists in a physical building at any given day to 600 journalists in the building in any given day and the rest working remotely. That is a massive undertaking. It, is, it has got to be the largest, fastest change to our working practices in the BBC's history. So perhaps uh, people can be a little bit, uh, forgive us a little bit if we haven't had time to think the big thoughts yet. They will come. They're starting to come, because we're getting our workflows down, the systems bedding down. People are understanding much more the benefits and the negatives of this new way of working. Uh, and then the next stage, as as lockdown continues to ease and you know things things um, uh, get back to normal, and also as we start to uh, the news agenda starts to move away from wall to wall COVID, I think we're going to. St- then have a chance to start thinking about, well, we did this for COVID, so maybe we could do it for a story about Russia or we could do it as a story about China. So it doesn't have to be just COVID stories. But that's very much, we're at the early stages of that.
0: Do you think that uh, comms people, advisors are, are moving in the way in which they engage with you now uh, and, they, and they obviously put forward content uh, given the situation that we find ourselves in? Or are they still you know, in PR 1.0.
1: No, I think I think they're they're having the same discussions and challenges as we are. You know, government departments have all had to go to remote working overnight. So again, just as hopefully people will forgive us for not being necessarily particularly innovative yet, mm-hmm. uh, we understand that government departments haven't had a chance to do that because they're they've got all of their people working from home as well they're working out their systems as well so uh, it's probably a little too much to ask of, of any of us to uh, to have any big big long term thoughts about how we're going to use this or how we we're going to change as a result that that's all still to come and i wouldn't expect anybody either us or or a uh, um, government department to be starting to um, uh, starting to roll out brand new um, Com strategies in the middle of a crisis. Um, they w- they've done things. They've done certain things very well. Um, you know, they've, they, they're now setting up virtual. Meetings, virtual press conferences, took, took a little while, took us all a little while, um, just the same as, you know, our kids at school. It took the schools a little while to work out how they're going to deliver things remotely. So I think for the comms people, uh, it's taken them a little while to, to, to work out how to deliver things remotely. But we're all getting used to it now. We know how to do it. We know that we can set up a Zoom lunchtime meeting. We know that we can set up a, a Q&A with somebody in a session uh, via Zoom relatively quickly and cheaply. Um, three months ago, we certainly wouldn't have done that. So, so the interesting thing now is going to be how we, how we all, in our various um, areas of, of work, there, now now develop that to the, to the next stage.
0: Stuart, I think we could be talking for hours. So I'm just going to leave it with, with one more question. Are, are you missing international travel? <laughs> I am
1: and uh, uh, before lockdown about half of my time was spent on the road uh, and half of it was spent in London Um, and Uh, At the risk of sounding like um, uh, somebody who just wants to sit in business class and drink champagne, which I would stress I certainly don't do on the BBC's budget, um, I know that's not going to happen for the foreseeable future. And in many ways, I don't want it to happen because um, a lot of my work is is crash-sends, last minute phone calls, get on a plane, across time zones, last minute deadlines. And the thought of spending four hours at the airport before I take off to get my temperature taken and then all of having to wear a mask on a 12-hour flight uh, and everything that goes with it. And then when I get to wherever I'm going having the new protocols in place to work, frankly, I don't want that. So I miss, on the one level, I miss somebody making my bed in a hotel room. I miss the the beautiful Asian buffets at the Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore. Nice. Uh, I missed them hugely, and I'm looking forward to um, to getting back to them uh, because one of the high uh, there were there's, they were often a, a number of highlights of any given year in my in my foreign news calendar. One of them would be it was always wonderful to go to Shangri La Dialogue because I got to stay at the Shangri La, which I love. I always loved going to the UN General Assembly because I loved spending September in New York. Mm-hmm. uh and i know i'm not going to do any of those things next year i know i loved going to the g7 summits because even the summit even though the summits were very formulaic you get to, you got to go to some nice places that's not going to happen in the foreseeable future so on the one hand i miss all of that i miss the i miss the travel i miss the experience but in the current climate uh i don't miss it at all because i know trying to do what we did before given the restrictions, uh, and the protocols that are in place now are going to be more trouble than they're worth. So for me, I've made a couple of actually decisions in the last week or so in terms of uh, realising the way things are going to be for, for the foreseeable future. One of them is I've uh, downgraded my British Airways Amex card because I know that there's no point collecting all those avios at the moment because I'm not going to be able to use them. So why should I spend £200 on my credit card fee to collect Avios that I'm not going to be used? So I've, uh, I've bitten that bullet and realised that um, there's not a lot of benefit in collecting many Avios at the moment. And I've also, uh, I'm talking to you from my study sort of shed. I call it the new shed. It's where I'm working at the moment. I've got all the facilities in. And I've just decided to do a big uh, revamp and upgrade of that in the coming months and spend some money on, on uh, New Shed 2.0 because I know this is where I'm going to be working for the foreseeable future. So although I miss the days when I could quickly get on a plane and, and uh, go somewhere, the thought of spending uh, a little while longer in a newly refreshed and decorated new shed, I think at the moment is, is equally exciting. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm looking forward to uh, following the updates uh, and the upgrade of a uh, new share 2.0. Uh, um, Stuart, thanks very much for uh, the time. It's been a pleasure as, as always. Um, thanks once again.
1: Thanks, Huda. Good to talk to you.